All right, Judges chapter 7. We'll get into it this evening. We're going to continue looking at the life of Gideon and his journey of faith, um, which was a process, and we'll continue to look at that process this evening. It says then, in verse number 1 of chapter 7, Then Jerubbaal, who is Gideon, and all the people that were with him rose up early and pitched beside the well of Herod, so that the host of the Midianites were on the north um, side of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, Mine own hand hath saved me. Now therefore go to proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whosoever is fearful and afraid, let him return and depart early from the Mount Gilead. And there returned of the people twenty and two thousand, and there remained ten thousand. And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people are yet too many. Bring them down under the water, and I will try them for thee there. And it shall be that of whom I say unto thee, This shall go with thee, the same shall go with thee. And of whomsoever I say unto thee, This shall not go with thee, the same shall not go. The same shall not go. So he brought down the people under the water, and the Lord said unto Gideon, Every one that lappeth up the water with his tongue, as a dog lappeth, him shalt thou set by himself. Likewise, every one that boweth down upon his knees to drink. And the number of them that lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, were three hundred men. But all the rest of the people bowed down upon their knees to drink water. And the Lord said unto Gideon, By the three hundred men that lapped will I save you, and deliver the Midianites into thine hand. And let all the other people go every man unto his place. So the people took victuals in their hand and their trumpets and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man unto his tent, and retained those 300 men. And the host of Midian was beneath him in the valley. Let's look down at verse 15. And it was so, when Gideon heard the telling of the dream, and the interpretation thereof, that he worshipped and returned unto the host of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord hath delivered into your hand the host of Midian. And he divided the 300 men into three companies. And he put a trumpet in every man's hand with empty pitchers and lamps within the pitchers. And he said unto them, Look on me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outside of the camp, it shall be that as I do, so shall ye do. When I bow with a trumpet, when I, when I blow with the trumpet, I and all that are with me, then blow ye the trumpets also on every side of all the camp, and say the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men that were with him came into the outside of the camp in the beginning of the middle watch, the middle of the night. And they had but newly set the watch and they blew the trumpets, and brake the pitchers, and were in their hands. And the three companies blew the trumpets, and brake the pitchers, and held the lamps in their left hands, and the trumpets in their right hands, to blow withal. And they cried, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And they stood every man in his place round about the camp, and all the host ran and cried and fled. And three hundred blew the trumpets, and the Lord set every man's sword against his fellow, even throughout all the hosts. And the host fled to Bethshida. In Zererathath, and to the border of Elba Mahola, unto Tabith. And the men of Israel gathered themselves together out of Naphtali, and out of Asher, and out of all Manasseh, and pursued after the Midianites. And Gideon sent messengers throughout all Mount Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites, and take before them the waters unto Bethbara and to Jordan. Then all the men of Ephraim gathered themselves together, and took the waters unto Bethbara and to Jordan. And they took two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb. And they slew Oreb upon the rock Oreb, and Zeb they slew at the winepress of Zeb, and pursued Midian 
and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side, Jordan. Okay, let's pray. It's quite a story. Um, we'll cover it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for time together as a church family. And we just um, ask that you continue to bless the time here. Just help us as we look at your word. Um, to give us understanding and speak to our hearts. I pray um, about this issue this evening in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. I think for the most part, we all would enjoy a good underdog story. Uh, we love stories of those who find themselves at the bottom and through a process of facing one challenge after another rise to the top. We love stories like David and Goliath. This would be a very popular one among church kids and even known outside of church walls, a, a prominent story that is known of an underdog you know, facing a giant. We love the story of Louis Zamperini in the book Unbroken. How many of you read that book? Um, this real popular, um, maybe 10 years ago, just a fascinating story of resilience um, in World War II, a prisoner of war. We love the story of Seabiscuit, a small horse who beat a triple crown winner and became a symbol of hope in the Great Depression. We love hearing of Frodo and Sam after 17 five-hour-long movies finally getting the ring to Mordor, um, facing that seemingly insurmountable obstacle. And we love these stories uh, primarily, we love these underdog stories because we empathize with the characters. We put ourselves easily into their shoes. We see ourselves in their difficult situation. An average individual like you and me defying all odds and rising to the top. In fact, the empathy we feel for an underdog is so powerful that it's become a significant part of marketing strategy in, in these massive corporations. Companies make a ton of money uh, off of our love for the underdog story. In traditional marketing, businesses took a top dog approach and top dog brand stories were considered favorable because the going belief was that individuals tend to associate themselves with winners and disconnect from losers. So that was, that was the past theory. Uh, however, more recent studies are proposing that underdog origin stories can often be more effective and lead to greater brand loyalty because we identify with the underdog. And this is, this is why, hilariously, you have Apple, a $3 trillion company, still showing pictures of Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak in their garage, right? Um, they're not underdogs, but they're trying to present themselves as that um, because they, they want us to identify with their brand. Perhaps one of the most underrated underdog stories in history is that of Gideon in the Midianite army. It's truly incredible. Gideon honestly was worse off than an underdog. Um, at first glance, there was actually no possible way he could win. Uh, it was impossible. But through a process of obedience, he arrived at a place where it was actually impossible to lose because the Lord was on his side. So to tell this story of Gideon's great victory, I actually want to begin at the end. Gideon experienced one of the most spectacular victories, if not the most spectacular victory, the world has ever known. As we discussed a couple of weeks ago, uh, Midian was a fierce and brutal foe to Israel. On an annual basis, 
They would sweep in like grasshoppers, leaving devastation behind them. They would come in like warriors, and these Israelites who were not warriors would be forced up into the hills and left to watch the devastation happen before their eyes. These Midianites would come through, they would decimate Israel's crops every year, season after season, decimate their crops, and what they didn't take for themselves, they would just let their livestock run out and trample and destroy. Every year after the time of harvest, Israel would descend from the hills to find that it was going to be another year of starvation and poverty. So the Midianite army as a whole was comparatively massive. After ransacking the land this particular season in our story, the Midianite hordes assembled as one army in a valley near the hill of Mori, which was just southwest of the Sea of Galilee. So fully assembled, the Midianite army totaled 135,000 soldiers. Going up against this massive army was Gideon with 300 Israelite men. Those are unbelievably terrible odds. It's like 450 to one. That'd be like me against all of you, which would not go well. Um, Those were the odds Gideon was facing. So for Gideon, this was undeniably the worst possible setup. But he does it. He did it through an incredible act of God. Gideon decimated this army of 135,000. So Gideon had a plan. Whether or not God gave him this plan, the Bible doesn't really say. Certainly, God gave Gideon a great deal of wisdom and was acting on his behalf and working through him. But Gideon divided his army into three separate companies of 100 men. So we would we would assume he was leading one of them, and then two other men leading two other companies of 100 men each. And to each man he gave three things. A trumpet, a torch, and each torch covered by an empty clay jar. And he gave them explicit instructions to follow. Uh, he was to follow, they were to follow his lead. He and, and the 100 men who were with him would go down to the Midianite camp in the valley and and begin to surround it from their side. And when Gideon and the men who were with him would blow their trumpets, everyone else was to do the same. They would blow their trumpets. They were to follow what Gideon did and then shout, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So he gave them these very explicit instructions. So with these instructions, and in the dead of night, in the middle of the night, Gideon's three companies moved down out of the hillside into the valley where the Midianite army was and began to surround the Midianite army of 135,000 soldiers. Once the enemy was fully surrounded by Gideon's 300 men, They smashed the clay pots, probably on the ground, revealing the lights they were holding, and began to blow their trumpets. And they blew with all their mights. And at the same time, they cried out, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And they cry with with, with just incredible noise. And as an an army, they, they shouted this. And at this point, the Midianites, 
would have been startled awake. And then they're confused and they're, they're disoriented. They, they don't know what's going on. All they know is they stumble out of their tents and they see 300 torches of light. To, that doesn't, that, to them, that doesn't mean 300 dudes. That means 300 dudes leading a lot of other dudes. Okay? So they look up. Just imagine being in a valley and looking up on a hillside and just seeing 300 beams of light all the way around as far as you can see, all the way around, completely surrounding your army. At the same time, you're hearing this raucous sound of 300 horns just blaring and men shouting. And they're half asleep, wondering what's going on as they stumble out into the night. And so you can imagine in this experience, they panicked. In their half asleep, startled state, they, they panic. They begin to run in, in every direction, looking for weapons, looking for a way out of the camp. It, it, was, it was total chaos in the middle of the night. They begin to shout in the dingy light of campfires. They're trying to identify, okay, who's friend? Who's foe? What's going on? There were no electric lights. Okay, they're down in a valley. It's dark. And they're trying to figure out what's going on here. Who's safe to be around? And Gideon and his, Gideon and his man simply stood their ground and continued blowing their trumpets and, and continued shouting with all their might. The all-out the all chaos continued in the Midianite camp. In, in an army of 135,000 people, it would have been impossible to know, personally know, every face, let alone try to identify that face in the dark of night. So they're running around uh, trying to escape, and everywhere they turn, some man has a sword, and I don't know if this man is my friend or if this man is... Some of these guys shouting up from the hillside. And so they begin turning on one another. And every time they come around another tent, hop around another camel, around another bush, there's another man with a sword. And they begin fighting amongst themselves and, and killing one another off. So there was this darkness shouting, 300 trumpets blaring. It was total chaos. So the Midianite army was on the run. And they dispersed from the valley they were in down towards the Jordan River. And they spread out along about a 10-mile stretch of the Jordan River. And the Israelites, seeing that the Midianite army had, had been disseminated, pursued after them. Men from Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh gathered together as a small army and, and pursued after them towards the Jordan River. Gideon sent out messengers up into Mount Ephraim and commanding them to rally together and get ahead of the fleeing Midianites uh, to the east at the Jordan River. And, and this they did. They eventually captured two of the Midianite princes and, and nobles and, and killed them there on the east side of the Jordan River. Midian's massive army of 135,000 was reduced to a mere 15,000 in one night. One hundred. And 20,000 people killed in one night. So Gideon, with his army of 300 and with his odds of 450 to 1, went up against the Midianite army and saw one of the most incredible victories the world has ever known. Honestly, there's, there's not really any Bible story like it. Talk about an underdog story. Here was Gideon, one of the Bible's heroes, he, he, he was a man who demonstrated courage and heroism, a man who demonstrated leadership and boldness, a man used of God greatly because this was obviously God's doing all along the way, a man used of God to bring about tremendous results. 
And that is where we often focus, the product, the, the results that were brought about, brought about. An underdog against all odds becoming the hero. A hero doing a heroic deed, seeing a heroic victory, and having a heroic story to tell. Oh, to be like him, we might say. Oh, to have such boldness. Oh, to have such courage. But in focusing on that product, if you will, we can ignore the process of simple, humble obedience to the Lord's commands that led to this point. How did this very average Israelite, and he was very average, he was a Baal worshiper hiding in a wine press just a chapter ago. How did this average Israelite become a hero? Well, as you well know, Gideon didn't start with 300 men. He started with 32,000. This was his army to begin with. He began with 32,000 men ready for battle. And these were still not great odds. It was about four to one, but that's at least workable, right? Four to one, it's like, we can at least make a plan, and I suppose stranger things have probably happened. Um, we, can, we can make a plan. Maybe, you know, Gideon at this point had only assembled men from four tribes. There were still 13 tribes from which he would call out other Israelites to battle. This was not ideal, but it was at least workable. But... God had a problem with Midian's army. And the problem was not that Gideon's army was too small or too unprepared or too ill-equipped. God told Gideon that his army was too large. God said to Gideon, verse number two, the people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. Now, all of all the absurd things God could have said to Gideon, this was probably the last he expected. Your army's too small. Like, dude, there's 135,000 Midianites out there. But it's, it's not too small, it's too big. So God says his army was too large, and this would have not been what Gideon expected. But God had a plan. And his plan was to glorify himself. God was concerned that if he gave Gideon the victory with his current army, even in its diminished size, Israel would continue in their pride and rebellion against God, claiming their own might instead of attributing the victory to God. So in effect, God said to Gideon, I don't want people to say that Gideon had victory because Gideon was awesome. I want them to say Gideon had victory because Gideon was obedient. God's intent is not that we worship the man but instead the God to whom the man was obedient. So here's how God said it to the Apostle Paul. My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. God is concerned with who gets the glory, and so he often chooses to do incredible things through humble, obedient, and even sometimes deeply flawed servants. We often think, the Apostle Paul, we, we often think of the Apostle Paul and his thorn in the flesh when we reference this verse. And that was the issue. 
But Paul thought bigger than his thorn in the flesh. He went, he went beyond that to other difficulties. He says, therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Paul said, in light of that promise that God said, I'm going to choose faithful obedience in the midst of this whole list of difficulties because that is when God gives the victory. So, in his effort to manifest his own glory, God called Gideon to obediently follow a series of commands, all of which would have seemed absurd and would have challenged his faith greatly every step of the way. First, God commanded Gideon to address his army and ask who was afraid and fearful. I've never led an army. But I would guess the first thing you would want to ask a group of soldiers that's greatly outnumbered is not, who's afraid? It's not exactly how you rally the troops, right? This would have been the last thing Gideon would have wanted to bring up to his men. To simply ask the question was an act of obedience and, and would have been a huge step of faith. Uh, a military leader seeks to instill courage and, and bravado and, and rally the troops. This was the opposite of what Gideon would have wanted to say to his men. That was the first step of obedience was simply asking the question. But second, God commanded Gideon to send all of those who were afraid back to their homes. And once, of, once again, this would have taken a great deal of faith. Not only, would have, not only would this have reduced their numbers, but it likely would have discouraged the hearts of those who remained. I mean, imagine you're an army of 32,000, you're going up an army of 135,000, and a bunch of your guys leave. Like, that's discouraging. So this had no small effect. 22,000 of Gideon's men left. His army was cut down by two-thirds, and his odds are now 13 to 1. Uh, again, just imagine how disheartening this would have been. So at this point, to simply continue in obedience would have been difficult and, and would have been an act of faith on the part of Gideon. So third, God said to Gideon, you still have too many guys. And again, this has to sound absurd. But God instructed Gideon to take his men down to the river to drink. And he said, those who drink a certain way, I'll tell you which, they're going to go. The rest are going to stay. Now, at this point, if I'm Gideon, I'm going to think probably, I'd say, God, no, I think we're pretty set on water right now. Um, I don't think we're very thirsty. Um, as far as water goes, we're good. But that's not what Gideon does. He obediently takes uh, his men down to the river to drink. So the fourth thing God asked Gideon to do is he instructed Gideon to send home all of those who got down on their hands and knees to slurp the water to keep all of those who lapped the water out of their cupped hands like dogs would lap water. So Gideon washes men. And he's looking along this river as, as 15,000 of his men begin to drink. And he's watching, and he begins counting. And can you imagine the angst that would have been welling up inside of him as he's looking at 10,000, not 15,000 men, drinking water, and he comes up with 300. 300 men that he's supposed to go up against this army of 135,000 with. So he's left with 300, 
And Gideon obediently sent away the 9,700 um, who God told him to. God said, with these 300 men, I will give you the victory over Midian. So at this point, God has time and time and time and time and time and time again made it clear to Gideon what his plan is. And God says, now this is the group of guys I'm going to do it with. All Gideon had to do was follow through. He's followed in obedience every step of the way through this process of obeying God's commands. All he had to do was follow through. But God reminded Gideon of his promise. All that was required was Gideon's obedient follow through. But God once again assured Gideon, Gideon, your obedience to my command is how you will achieve the victory. And God was ready to do even more assuring. God said, go down to the Midianite camp with your servant, Purah, and just listen to what they're saying about you there. So that's what Gideon does. He makes his way out of the hillside, down into the valley, and starts approaching the Midianite camp. And the Bible once again just describes the mass of this army. He comes out over this hillside, and just puts yourself there in your mind's eye. He looks out down into this valley, and just as far as he can see, he sees tent with campfire and camels, tent with campfire and camels, and tent with campfire and camels, just this mass of humanity, 135,000 people in this valley. And so he moves on, and he starts approaching the army, and he gets just close enough that he can overhear a conversation going on in one of these tents. And you can just imagine, maybe a man has just come in from watch, and he's about to swap with his comrade. And, you know, his friend's waking up, and he says, dude, you're not going to believe the dream I just had. Dreams are so weird. He said, I was dreaming that this loaf of barley bread comes rolling down into the camp and it hits our tent. But instead of just stopping like you would expect a loaf of bread to do, the tent just explodes into the air, flips over, comes down in a pile. He's like, what in the world? Like, dreams are weird. Well, the guy who's been keeping watch doesn't think that's so funny. And he says, that freaks me out. I've been thinking about this. There's this guy called Gideon, and I've been hearing about him. He apparently destroyed an idol of Baal. He's creating quite a stir, and I'm afraid his God is going to give them the victory. Now, imagine being Gideon hearing that. Like, why in the world when Gideon hear that conversation and hear this guy tell that dream and hear that guy interpret it that way, it had to just bolster his faith, and that's what it, what it did. He, the Bible says he worshiped, and so he went back to his army. It was a sign from God. It gave him confidence. And as we just discussed a moment ago, he experienced one of the most incredible victories in the Bible. It was, it was an incredible moment. We often focus on the product, the, the spectacular victory. That, that's, that's the product. But God is concerned with the process a faithful, humble obedience to his commands that leads to the product of victory. And that's what Gideon demonstrated. Gideon experienced spectacular victory, not because of his might, not because of his power, not because of anything in himself, chance or developed, but because of his repeated, humble obedience to God's simple commands. The product of victory comes through the process of obedience. 
We can only expect the product of victory if we're willing to submit ourselves to the process of obedience, daily obedience, in the nitty gritty of life, in the day to day, hourly obedience over the course of a lifetime. We, we so often focus on the product. Traditionally, Christians have called this the victorious Christian life or uh, victorious Christian living. And we all want the product, a happy marriage, a thriving church, good kids, peace, respect, and a promotion at work. But behind each of these good products is a long process of obedience to God's way of doing things. So in the case of a happy marriage, daily demonstrating selfless love and unconditional respect for the entire time you're married. In the case of a thriving church, committed people serving faithfully for as many as 20 or even 30 years. In the case of good kids, 18 years of employing biblical principles in parenting and discipline. 18 years of admonishing and instructing them in the Lord. In the case of a deep and abiding peace, daily resting in who God is and who He says I am as His child. In the case of respect and promotion at work, decades of dedicated work and service. So. Let's flesh this out a little bit more looking at the, the product, we might say, of a good marriage. Our tendency is to look at someone else's marriage and make excuses for ourselves. So we might think things like this. Of course they like each other. They both have A-plus personalities. Of course they have so much fun together. They have so much more money to spend. It's not hard to have grace with one another when your flaws are so minuscule. I, I wouldn't, it wouldn't be so hard for me to love her if she was that beautiful. It wouldn't be so hard for me to respect him if he was actually respectable like so-and-so. So when we think this way about any issue, we're choosing to ignore and discredit the years of process that led to the product we all want. Uh, we're choosing to ignore the faithful obedience to God's way of doing things that led to the desired outcome. Uh, the product, a happy marriage, is a direct result of a husband selflessly loving his wife every day of every week, of every month, of every year, of every decade that led to the desired outcome. And, and he does that in, in accordance with Ephesians 5.25. It's the direct result of a wife unconditionally honoring her husband, even when he may not be worthy of honor, in accordance with Ephesians 5.22. That happy marriage is the direct result of a man choosing to drink water out of his own cistern, maybe even while having the opportunity to drink out of another, in accordance with Proverbs 5.15. It's the direct result of a woman not going to bed angry and asking for forgiveness before pillowing her head, in accordance with Ephesians 4.26. And I could go on and on and on and on and on. My point is that the product of a good marriage within the Christian life doesn't just happen. These, these victories don't just happen. It is a result of the process of daily obedience to God's pattern for how we should relate to one another. So some of you might be thinking right now, you've only been married five years. What in the world do you know about marriage? And to that I would say, Five years with twins, anywhere in the mix, is equivalent to 20 years anywhere else. So, no, I'm just kidding. I would say 
that's totally fair. There's a lot I don't know, and I'm talking about the process while I'm still in the midst of it. I understand that. But I want to point out that in every other area of life, we reject the idea that a good product comes about without a process. Um, as a Christian, we reject the idea that the world and all that is in it just happened. We reject Darwinism. We say it required a creator. As capitalist, we reject the idea that money just comes to be without good work. What, what do we always retort when we talk about giving away free money? Who's going to pay for it? Or if a man does not work, he should not eat, right? We understand when we walk in the grocery store and we became acutely aware during COVID that toilet paper just not just appear on store shelves, right? There's a long process of supply chain that leads to the toilet paper being in Walmart. But when it comes to the products we've produced with our lives, our marriages, our children, our joy or the lack thereof, our contribution, our impact, our legacy, our ministry, our witness, our love, we are often not so ready to acknowledge the process. But the Apostle Paul said it quite clearly in Galatians 6-7. He said, you reap what you sow. And if we want to experience the victories of men like Gideon, an incredible victory, an average guy seeing an incredible victory, if we want to experience that, the, the victorious products of the Christian life, we must daily submit ourselves to the process of obedience to God's pattern for living. The, the product of victory comes through the process of obedience. So let's consider that in our own lives this evening as we stand together.